Welcome to the Jam Session Radio Hour. This is John Landis. Happy to be with you today, as always. Tonight, we are going to be bringing you an interview with music, really interesting music, an interesting interview with Ray Anderson, who is a treasure of a human being for us out here on the East End. He has the Pocket Brass Band. He's played in all different kinds of bands. He's a great trombone player. He's head of the Jazz Studies Department at Stony Brook, plays a lot at the Jazz Loft. He's going to be playing at the Jazz Loft in his traditional holiday show on December 17th, so I highly recommend that. This is a really interesting, entertaining, fascinating fellow who plays the trombone in a way that uh, makes you feel like you've got another human in the room uh, that you're talking to. Um, Humorous and with all kinds of uh, highlights. He's had a great career, continues to have a great career, and as I say, really interesting. So stick with us and hang out and listen to this interview that we did. This is part one of a two-part series with interview and music of Ray Anderson. You moved to first. I moved out here. I moved out here to Setauket in '88 um, from Greenwich Village, where I had lived for 12 years on McDougal Street, right between Bleecker and West Third, the oh carnival okay. block of all carnival blocks, oh you know. But um, we had a two-year-old son by 88. He was born in 86. We had been looking for a place to move to since 85, when Jackie got pregnant and could not find anything in the city that we actually could afford that also felt safe. I mean, we have been looking and looking and looking. But New York City in 85, 86 was not the same level of safety, you know, as it is now. And I, of course, was often on the road. So that didn't, lots of places did not really feel comfortable. I mean, the wonderful thing about McDougal Street you know, it was hard to sleep there, but there was always people on the sweet street, you know, and we knew the guy in the Greek restaurant and we, you know, we knew all kinds of people there. So, so I could go off traveling and not worry about Jackie or, or then my son, but we had to move. I mean, this was a six floor walk up oh, with the oh, toilet that was outside the apartment and down the hall. So we had to leave the apartment, go down the hall, you know, take the key, unlock the padlock and go in your, your own, it was our toilet. We didn't share it with anybody, but, but you had to leave the apartment and go in the public hall. So you can imagine like, this doesn't work for toilet training, you know, (laughs) it's like, okay, son, first you move the Fox police lock and then you take this key and then, you know, it's this isn't going to happen, you know what I mean? So, so we finally wound up out here um, through friends of my wife. We found a, they they invited us to come and stay in a little place that they had, and and uh, in yeah, in well, in technically in Oldfield, okay, but same this all same neighborhood, right? You know, it's a yeah. And you had yeah. no connection. I mean, the, Stony Brook was there, but you, you had no connection to Stony Brook then. I had no connection with it at that time. No. So but you were uh, traveling a lot, and you'd you'd already been a musician for quite a period of time. So this was going to yeah, be- yeah, and, yeah, and most of my work was was on the road. So if it was a question of going to the to the airport, you could go to the airport just about as easily from here as you could from Manhattan. I mean, it wasn't that much difference, yeah. you know. So you some yeah. Well, no, not n- well, you. You'd wind up in JFK or LaGuardia to go, you know. But, but yeah, yeah. It was yeah. It was um, it was good, you know. I just yeah. to tell everybody. Um, obviously, I've already done an intro, but we're talking to Ray Anderson, and this is a privilege uh, to be talking to Ray, who's really one of the the uh, stalwarts in the jazz world out here in the East End and all over the place. And we're going to kind of go chronologically a little bit through his career and play some music of his from different genres and things that he's done. He's played with so many different people. Obviously we can only um, kind of uh, touch the tip of the iceberg here with, uh, with what he is going to tell us. But Ray, 
you started out in, so you were just talking about when you came out here from Greenwich Village. We want to hear more later on about Greenwich Village and your years there. You said 12 years, so you must have been playing in clubs all around there, right? Yes, I moved to New York in 73, and uh, we got that McDougal place, I think it was 76 or something like that. So you moved, so you moved when you were in your early 20s, you came to New York. I was I was 20, actually. Yeah. I was 20 yeah. years old. I had $300 from the sale of my VW Bug and then two phone numbers of friends of friends, people yeah. that I hadn't met, <laughs> and a knapsack and a trombone. That's how I came to New York in 73. So you, you, you weren't with your mate then? You weren't yet with No, your no. Mate. Right. You met her in New York? Yeah, yeah. Met her in New York. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So um, was it like in your mind, in your teenage years, you were going to leave Chicago and come to New York? I couldn't wait to get out of Chicago. <laughs> I left Chicago when I was 16. Really? I, yeah. I was, I was kind of desperate to get out of Chicago. Chicago, huh. especially, okay, I was born in 52. So I grew up in the 60s in, in Chicago. And Chicago is certainly one if not the most racist places in all of this wow. great racist country that we live in, you know. And the, the divisions in Chicago are like fortress walls, sort of. Uh -huh. There's a neighborhood, and on the other side of that street is another neighborhood. Wow. And if you go in the other neighborhood and you're not from that neighborhood, you know, you can get your ass kicked. And what was your neighborhood? I grew up in Hyde Park, which is the neighborhood controlled by the University of Chicago. So it's on the south side of Chicago and, um, and, the, and the lake. But Hyde Park is surrounded on three sides by the, the famous Brownsville black ghetto, basically, you know. So the, the, the tension of that was so intense there. And, um, and in many ways, it was a wonderful place to grow up because I heard so much music early. You know, really I like mean, a combination of live and well, yeah, live, but also on the radio and what people were doing, and yeah, just being, just sort of being aware of it. I mean, if you're in, if you're in Chicago and you and you like music, you will hear the blues. So, did you yeah. have friends growing up who were became musicians who stayed in Chicago, or did most of you leave? Um, most most people left. Yeah. Most people, most people that I knew left. And yeah. your parents, your parents were connected to the university. Yes, my well, yes and no. My father was a professor of theology at the Chicago Theological Seminary, which is actually its own institution, but it's right on the campus of the U of C, and long ago it actually was part of the U of C so it 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 uh, became its own place at some time in the 40s I think but they shared students with the U of C Divinity School and it uh -huh. was you know it was definitely part of that that world and yeah. he taught there he taught there for 38 years and he taught theology yeah pastoral theology and pastoral and uh, was he a pastor he's an ordained minister and what? But he never ran a church. He was not a. He was. He, he wasn't a minister of a church. He was a professor all his life. Presbyterian. He would go and substitute for people if they needed a, a church yeah. needed somebody to take over for a, a a month or something like that or a day or something. He would do some of that, but he, but his work was all in training people how to be ministers. In other mm -hmm. words how to minister yeah. to people. And this is a place, I mean, what he, what he was really fascinated by was, was psychology. Uh -huh. So he did all this work with, with um, like gestalt 
therapy and yeah. he was very involved in the human potential movement when that came out and Fritz Perls and the people at Esalen and yeah. that whole that whole movement that that came about in the in the 60s of of how to um understand ourselves I guess is one way to put it so were you, know. you were you also <clears throat> a kind of a church churchy family uh, oddly enough we were not really a churchly churchy family oh you know i mean we definitely went to church right you know yeah i went to church i hated going to church you have to go to church on sunday i hated that didn't like it you know and uh and i i think in in many ways i remember when my when my father was was um you know retired and much much older and and we were talking one time he, he said you know if i hadn't grown up in an environment that was completely about the church i would have gone into psychology or something like that i would not have pursued this that's what you, that's your father speaking yeah 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 yeah, yeah. so um so yes, he ended up in he an was a fascinating not, guy, wonderful guy. Yeah. yeah, he ended up doing something that was church related, but but uh, he didn't have a church. <clears throat> That's interesting. Right, and and his his focus in life was was how to minister to you know people's problems. Yeah. So he would use you know his his PhD thesis was about gestalt therapy, where you where you investigate how the body is holding the neuroses or other nice. mental problems that you have it's like that it that these things exist in your body and in fact you can you can work on them by finding them in the body and working on the on where that is in your body is that in your throat is that, that something that you, I mean, is you that know. something that you've you've used Gestalt therapy? I mean, you, you learned about it, obviously. Is that something you've used in your own life? Um, well, I've long been interested in, you know, spirit and spirituality. I'm not religious in any way. It's it. It seems like it was in a way always clear to me that the organized religion was not it they'd miss the boat miss the boat yeah i there mean pieces of it that resonate but but most of it yeah there's all there's good stuff in it in i mean in to me, it's more about community than it is really about spiritualism absolutely and most and, people i think that that are really serious about church it's more about community you know and yeah and, and community of course is really valuable but the problem of the of the hierarchy and the organization it, it seems to affect every you know as soon as you try and organize this and say what's right and what's wrong you're yeah. getting trouble yeah you know? well let's get yeah. back to chicago so you're a kid in chicago and you have this life with this interesting family your father's obviously an intellectual maybe your mom too and siblings and oh, my mom totally my mom wrote books has a phd taught at chicago state university let's not leave her out of it yeah let's she not really <laughs> she, my mom was something man <laughs> like yeah don't don't think she was home cleaning the dishes that not my mom well, what was her field oh, no 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 what no huh what was her field early childhood education oh, okay mm -hmm. wow mm -hmm. so you had a pastoral theologian father and an early child education may a phd mother yeah you ended from... up being a musician maybe that's why well <laughs> you got the, the real thing the 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 intense, you know, intellectual approach of the family would perhaps make you run the other way.
The Jam Session Radio Hour is supported by Bayard Fenwick as a sponsor and underwriter. As part of the Terry Cohen team, located at the East Hampton office of Saunders Real Estate, Bayard is well-versed in the residential real estate market from Bridgehampton to East Hampton to Amagansett to Montauk. Bayard believes there are three parts to the value of a property. Land value, improvements made to the property, and an emotional component. You can reach Bayard Fenwick at the East Hampton office of Saunders Real Estate at 631-324-7575. That's 631-324-7575. The Jam Session Radio Hour is also supported by Oza Sabbath Architects of Bridgehampton, New York. Oza Sabbath Architects both designs and builds homes, believing that a well-designed home suffuses our lives with the essential elements of balancing and recharging. Oza Sabbath Architects can be reached at ozasabbath.com. That's O-Z-A-S-A-B-B-E-T-H.com and at 631-808-3036. That's 631-808-3036. You are listening to WLIW FM 88.3 in Southampton, New York. That's liwliw.org slash radio. Can be heard all around the world at that link. And you're listening to the Jam Session Radio Hour. This is John Landis, your host. And tonight we are interviewing and playing music of uh, a local treasure, uh, Stony Brook's own Ray Anderson. Well, let's get into that a little bit later. I want to I want to try to stick to your musical education. Yeah, and, we don't want to wander around here too much. We'll be here yeah, for five well, hours. Get back to spirituality. <laughs> definitely get back to spirituality and music, because for me, that's one of the most interesting things about all you people who do music. Because I find that to be a total strain in what you do. I mean, you played with a Robigon. Here I am jumping around, but you played with a Robigon, John Robigon, and maybe other places. But I know you played Stephen Talkhouse as part of our series, the Hamptons Jazz Fest and and the Jam Session. Yeah, Robigon during the and maybe you did something similar. But during the he told us in the interview during the um, pandemic, he like was in Utah, like out in the canyons, mm. and mm. he stick his horn out in the canyons. Mm. Yeah, he told me that. Yeah, the whole album out there. Yeah, and we talked some about uh, spirituality with with him. Anyway, that's just a whole another topic. That's great, but I want to talk about no, it. Robert. That is that is actually central to what I do for yeah. sure. You're absolutely right. Yeah, no, that's that's central. That that's what it's about. Well, what you puts know. you on a musical path? So. I graduated from high school in 16, at the age of 16, and I was young enough that I would not immediately get drafted into the Vietnam War without a student deferment. So I took a year off with the blessing of these amazing parents I had, and I went to Europe where they knew a lot of people, and I spent a year just bumming around Europe, essentially, with a... Uh, I didn't take a trombone, too much to carry. I had a knapsack with a, a C soprano saxophone and a recorder in it. And the the real beauty of this time was that's where it became completely clear to me that I was a musician and I didn't want to do anything else. So when I came back to the States, I went right back to the trombone. I've been playing it for years already. And I've been doing that ever since. Did you go back to Chicago? Nope. I went to, um, so here's a, you know, talk about white privilege and the class system in America. My father's job at the Chicago Theological Seminary would pay the tuition of his children to college up to the price of the U of C, which of course is as expensive as just about anywhere, you know. Right. So trying to be a, a dutiful son, I, I went to college and I went to McAllister College in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and I was there for a year. And I went to Cal Arts in LA and I was there for a semester. And finally, I even did about maybe about a year's worth of of study um, in New York 
at NYU at something they had called the University Without Walls. Mm. So I didn't go to any classes or go inside any walls, but I did do some studying there, which was which was wonderful. I did I, I did a few things. So I picked up a few things at a few places, but basically since my last trombone lesson was when I was 16 and basically since then I'm self-taught. Right. I mean, I've, I've, you know, a lot of people have helped me enormously in my, in my life, obviously, you know, but, um, but I'm not a product of music education. You know, I never went to Indiana or Berkeley or North Texas state or, any of those places that NYU's um, um, uh, school without walls. The wonderful thing was, I was able to take lessons, composition lessons with Jimmy Jeffrey. That was incredibly valuable. Mm-hmm. So I went and you know, and I just went to Jimmy Jeffrey's house. Right. And. He, and and he gave me assignments and I started stuff. And then, you know, we played a little bit and then he hired me. So then I was playing with Jimmy Jeffries' group and it was an incredible, wonderful education and just, you know, what an amazing guy. Yeah. I mean, I'm still using, you know, compositional approach that I, I learned from Jeffrey. It's still, that's, that's really how I write. Mm. you know yeah and it, and it was so amazingly creative and wonderful like nothing vertical all like write a melody okay now write another melody that goes with that melody okay now write a third melody that goes along with that melody and then okay think about what should happen next? And so nothing about what's the chord progression. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No chord progression, mm-hmm. you know. And when you write the melody, don't write it in time. Don't, no bar lines. Mm-hmm. Because, you, you know, you don't want to box this into 4-4 four, four or something. Just write the the rhythm as you hear it, you can change everything later, sure. you know, and just see what just see what you get there. And, and what it makes you think of? What do you what does it make you think of? What do you think of next? You know, it's brilliant. Have there been other people that you've worked with that have been as or similarly influential on your um, on your writing? Well, I'm, I'm blessed with having spent most of my career in cooperative bands. So, you know, Barry Altschul's trio with Mark Elias, and then um, like Mark Elias is someone that I've just learned an enormous amount from (laughs) because we've been in these cooperative bands for 45 years now you know we we were first we were playing in with with barry he was also with braxton for a very brief time when i was with braxton but then we we formed the slickophonics together that was an entirely cooperative band and uh and slickophonics was was helias and i uh-huh. Jim Payne played drums, Alan Jaffe played uh, guitar, Steve Elson played saxophone. You know there hasn't been a better one yet. You put 
your watch on the floor, one, two, three, four, then you jump back two feet each. Step on your watch, then you count up to ten, then you throw it to a shark on the beach. Step on your watch, step on your watch, step on your watch. Rolex, Timex, digital snooze alarm. Step on your watch, step on your watch, step on your watch. Longines, Seiko, Boulevard, Accutron. Destroy your watch, do it today. You know we got plenty of time. All moving parts are guaranteed, but it never did keep time. My father worked hard, 25 years till a gold watch was in reach. Then he stepped on his watch, counted to 10, he threw it to a shark on the beach. Step on your watch. Computerized chronograph. Step on your watch. A radio dials and digital smiles. Step on your watch. Elgin, Whitnow, South Gold. Step on your watch. Come on, Steve, the time is right. Too much wear and tear Now hark to the bark the shark in the dark Come on, lose these blues and greens Put your watch on the floor Stop it some more Smash it to smithereens Step on your watch I Do it today, yeah, do it today Step on your watch I Put your watch on the floor Don't worry no more Step on your watch Do the twist on the hands of time Step on your watch Throw it to that shark on the beach Step on your watch. Spandex, Rolex, do it to a Cartier. Step on your watch. Step on your watch. Step on your watch. Five, four, three, two, one. You're listening to WLIW, 88.3 FM in Southampton, New York, Long Island's only NPR station. Also heard at WLIW.org slash radio. Thanks for being with so us that was in the on the Jam Session Radio Hour. We're early, listening to an interview and music of Ray Anderson. That was 80 to about 87. Mm-hmm. I'm 80 to about 87. But bass trombone, which is the trio with, with Jerry Hemingway, is still going on. Okay. He started that in 77, I think was the first year. Yeah. Um, What do you mean by cooperative band? There's no leader. Nobody decides the the repertoire. Hmm. If I'm the leader, I decide the repertoire. Yeah, yeah. We might play something that somebody in the band wrote, but but that's my choice. You know, I make the set list. I decide what we're going to play or record. If it's a cooperative band... Everybody brings in their compositions and we play everybody's compositions and decide cooperatively what to do with them. Shall we change them? Are they working or shall we throw them out? Or, you know, all of that is done in, in a, in a. So you've done both. You've done both the the leader type bands and cooperative bands. A lot. Yeah. A whole lot. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I've never really been, I don't have much of a career as a side man. I was three or four years with Anthony Braxton. That was really valuable. Mm-hmm. I learned so much from Braxton. That was that was fabulous. 
But, you know, I was never in the Jazz Messengers, and I was never, I never played with Horace Silver, and I never played with, you know, you name it, Woody Herman, or, you know, I mean, I never, right. I never really did the, you know, jazz sideman thing and, and get a reputation that way. It's like, it's, I've always been, you know, fairly rebellious and determined to do my own thing. And right. so I wind up playing with people that I feel like I fit with or, right. or people just show up, man, yeah. you know, it's right. like, you don't look for them. They just show up. Um, is there a significant difference between like leader led bands and cooperative bands? I mean, are there, are there examples of cooperative bands that have lasted a long, long time that, that have done just fine and made good careers for all kinds of people? I think generally it's, infinitely easier economically to be the band leader mm-hmm. because the 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 interface between the art and the commerce is such that the press wants to focus on a person right so i think it's much easier to be a, a leader because then you get press as the leader and you know i mean there's there's very few that the mjq of course comes to mind but 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 other than that you know not really you know and and even the bands that obviously are cooperative in some ways coltrane's quartet i mean that that's an that would not be that quartet without elvin jones Mm -hmm. You know, it wouldn't, it would, you know, I mean, so jazz is by its nature cooperative because it's a, that, that's how we play the music, you know, but in terms of the, of the interface with, with commerce, it needs to be the John Coltrane Quartet, you know, so, uh, so the answer is like, yeah, as, a, as an astute um, career move, that's not a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm living proof that it's not, <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, it's tough out here. Yeah. It's nearly getting tougher, right? Or is it's it, only getting tougher. Uh, I don't want to jump ahead too far, but, but uh, you know, you've been able to put together a life in music that's taken you all over the world. That's, that's, in, that's exposed you to so many wonderful, interesting people. And I would think the cooperative band root from the way you describe it. Now that I hear about it, sounds like it would be right up your alley because you're, you know, you're a free thinking person. Yeah, I I do really love that, you know, and that's, you know, the the truth of the of the music is cooperative. This is this is a a real principle of. African American culture is cooperativity. You know, the 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 idea in jazz that that yeah, everybody has to lead and everybody has to follow. Yeah. And the way you play is totally related to the way the other people are playing. It's always this communication. It's always call and response. This is this is black culture. This is this is the central to the to the way the whole thing works. So that's why I say the interface with commerce is what sort of you know points it in this direction of like, well, who's the cat? You know, right. and somebody has to be the cat. And it's true that it, in many ways it's it's much easier if there is somebody who organizes stuff because as we can learn from our own democracy, democracies are unbelievably messy and kind of dysfunctional and things don't get done. And, you know, so, um, but just in terms of the reality of being on the bandstand, it's like, okay, I wrote the tune, but the way we're playing that tune is a function of how everybody in the band is playing it. And I'm trying to hire people who will bring something I don't want somebody who will just play the the notes I wrote. You know, I want somebody who right away will put personality and their own interpretation 
into into the notes. And we don't want to improvise the same way every night. I don't want to play, you know, here's the tune and then it it's always like this and it's always like that and it's like I don't want to do that. I want people that'll be like, "Well, let's let's do something else with it tonight." Let's suddenly go to double time. Let's let's stop and have a bunch of breaks. Let's you know, so you you know, you're trying to hire people that have those voices. Look look at look at Duke. It's like he, he hires the most individual sounding voices you can imagine. Mm-hmm. You know, that saxophone section, that's like everybody has a sound that's just absolutely their own sound, you yeah. know. And it's not about we should all have the same sound and the same horn and the same blend in order to create, you know, it's not, that's not what it's about, right. you know. Now, there's no question about who the leader of the band is, uh-huh. in Duke's case, you know. It's like, but the, the, the principle of the way that the music works is, is real. I would think also it it's, makes for an interesting career when you're, you know, when you're, play, when you're doing your own music and you're writing your own music, but you're also playing music by so many different composers in the same group. Yeah, this is wonderful. Yeah. It's like, yeah, I mean, yeah. I've been really blessed with an incredible wonderful bunch of opportunities so if yeah. you were to kind of track how your music has your music has changed over the years is there are there themes to that to the those that evolution or those changes well i think the the first thing that i was just really lucky to learn already so so young like as soon as i got back from that being in Europe and starting to do this career, I knew full well at that point that the goal was to become myself. And everybody doesn't automatically get that information, maybe. They they may think that the goal is to become proficient at being able to play a language like bebop or something, you know. So that was... I was lucky to learn that so early that it's like, yes, you do want to figure out how you play. It's great to, to, to try and learn what you can learn from JJ Johnson and Curtis Fuller and everybody, you know, like tricky Sam, you know, everybody, it's great. But, but ultimately you're, you're trying to move from imitation to inspiration to innovation wow trying to make that you know in your own way somewhere in the back of your mind you you know that that you're trying to do that you're trying to figure out like well what can i do that's that is mine that feels like that that expresses me you know given the fact that everybody's fingerprint is different what what can you do that expresses your fingerprints. So that's one thing. And the other thing is um, the enormous impact of the AACM. Because those cats, you know, particularly the Art Ensemble of Chicago, but also I, I worked with Braxton for, you know, two or four years. That's my one really significant apprenticeship, if you want to use that word, you know. Um, and um, the art ensemble, man, they figured out in the really pointed the way forward in in jazz in the sense of like, well, how could anybody get farther out than where Coltrane and them went?
We are lucky because we have another session coming up with Ray Anderson. That'll be part two. Um, go to Apple Music or Spotify or buy his music. He's got new albums coming out that we're talking about. Um, and also his um, he's, he's going to be playing live at the Jazz Loft in Stony Brook, which uh, again is a treasure as well. A great place if you haven't been there. Check it out. On uh, December 17, he's going to be doing his, his, uh, his uh, uh, annual holiday show. So that should be a real kick. And thanks again so much for being with us. Um, we want to thank various people who have been involved. We particularly want to uh, thank our, our uh, underwriters, who are Oza Sabbath Architects of Bridgehampton and Byard Fenwick of, uh, of uh, Sag Harbor and his uh, Saunders Realty Company out here. Thanks so much for their support. Thank you to Rafael Alvarez for his great work putting all this together. Thanks for Claes Brandal, music director of uh, the Jam Session. Thanks for all those who are involved with the Jam Session and the Hamptons Jazz Fest. More about that later. Thank you to Silvano Monasterios for the use of his tune Tropical Mirage as our intro and outro. Thanks to the great station, the great people at WLIW for supporting us and putting us on. Thanks to you guys so much. If you have feedback for me, please, for us on the radio show or whatever, please contact me at jlandis1948 at yahoo.com. I'd love to hear from you. Love to get some feedback. Take care of yourselves. Be well. Uh, enjoy the holidays with your families and your friends. And we'll catch you next time. Good night. Thank you.